Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 15, Episode 1. Filmmaker Jeremy Corbell joins us to discuss his film series, Extraordinary Beliefs. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is extraordinary podcaster Aaron Wright. Also looking fresh is Dan McHugh back in the studio. I'm feeling fresh. And you know what? I think today's episode is full of some really fresh stuff. Looking forward to the JC interviews that are coming up. Uh, Jeremy, what a fantastic talent yeah. to have on yeah. the first episode of 2016. Uh, this guy's a filmmaker and an artist. And we mentioned this a lot in the interview, but... I think that one of the first things I say is it's really refreshing to see his approach to documenting the UFO phenomenon. Mm. Well, the problem we've always come up against when we're ever dealing with documentaries or even discussions about ufology or these topics, you find that to hit critical mass, it's really over-sensationalised, mm. which just makes it corny and cheesy. And Jeremy stuff just doesn't do that, which is, as you say, Ben, it's just so refreshing. But I, th- I think it's just not the way he addresses the subject. It's him himself. He's a cool guy. I mean, he's he's got a certain energy that makes you just want to hear what he's talking about. Jeremy Corbell is an American contemporary artist and investigative filmmaker based in Los Angeles. Corbell documents extraordinary individuals and their belief systems. The research has taken him into the worlds of nanotechnology, aerospace exploration and exotic propulsion systems. His film work reveals how ideas held by credible individuals can alter the way we experience reality and force us to reconsider the fabric of our own beliefs. We hope you enjoy the interview. My name is Jeremy Corbell. I seek to weaponize your curiosity. And if you're ready to suspend your own prejudice, welcome to the world of extraordinary beliefs. Are we all the product of an alien video game? The extraterrestrial technology is real, it's possible. We have material that has been pulled out of a man's leg that should not exist. This sample could not have been made on Earth because the isotopic ratios. I know there are alien craft here from another planet, but I was inside one. Who are we? And where are we actually sitting within the architecture of our universe? Are we alone? Or is the answer simply stranger than we can think and think? Joining us on the show for the first time is artist and filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. Here to talk about some of his new projects and filmmaking. How are you today, Jeremy? Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. It's really funny how we met as well. I mean, after looking at some of your work, I feel like we should have been... Oh, years ago. You should have been on our radar for a while. But we got involved in this TV production project. Aaron and I have been speaking to this production company very, very early stages. And we've just come back from vacation, Jeremy. And while we were on our break, Aaron sent me a message and said they want to do this kind of casting thing on a Google Hangout talk. And I, my initial reaction was, oh, <laughs> do we have to do it? So anyway, we jumped on this uh, Google chat. And of course, you were there with us. And we just had this great discussion on UFOs. And I came away from that thinking, you know, that was really worth it because I got to speak with you. So I just thought that was a really funny way for us to meet. Well, it's a total lie. We met internet dating, but for your fans, that's perfect. <laughs> but then as I started to look into you know, some of the work you've been doing, uh, your website's extraordinarybeliefs.com, and you've got a bunch of really incredible short films, and immediately it struck me that your production style is very different to what we're used to seeing from people that make UFO-themed content. What was immediately lacking was the cheesy production values, the -the over-the-top sound effects. And what you replaced that with was some really kind of in-depth thinking about the topic and just 
amazing guests. Now, the most recent project you've put out is called uh, Nanoman Utility Fog. I really want to talk about this because this was fascinating. This uh, expert scientist who believes he's found some bizarre nanomaterial. But before we go into that, give us a bit of your background and how you got into filmmaking and interested in the UFO topic. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it, it was all an absolute accident for me. I wish I had a more exciting story than that, but I was a jujitsu uh, martial artist and that's all I did with my life. That's all I thought I would ever do with my life. And then, you know, life has a way of telling you otherwise. Uh, at one point I got really sick. I couldn't compete. I couldn't train. I couldn't teach my schools. And so essentially I stepped out and started you know, making artwork. And that was just a totally different life that I never expected. And then those fields, or I guess those lives kind of merged. And I realized that the, the dudes filming me for my art had a much cooler method to portray stories and interests than a two-dimensional thing that I was doing, which is essentially painting. And you know, from there, I was able to bring my interest into this topic, which started when I was 13 years old, hearing George Knapp, who's now my mentor, Bob Lazar and John Lear on the radio talking about the advanced propulsion systems that Bob Lazar claimed to have worked on, back engineering systems that were non-terrestrial at a sub-base of Area 51 called S4. And that's kind of where the interest started for me, but I didn't have any vehicle to explore it. And eventually, you know, my camera became a passport to the unusual. It was the opportunity I had been waiting for um, to be able to talk to some of these people and try to find out for myself if there was any grit to this, if there was any truth. And so I guess just from there, I got completely fascinated and addicted. And thanks for the you know, compliment on my work. Essentially, my primary goal was simple. It was to uplift the visual medium, you know, to enhance it from what I had to grow up watching. And so these investigations, they're real. There is no filter. You come with me on these adventures to try to essentially see if someone's full of BS or if they're telling the truth. Well, that's what really struck me. Uh, as soon as I saw these videos you were doing, these short films, there was a certain honesty to it that you don't get from the medium today on television. Like anything you see from the main networks is just overlaid with effects for dramatic purposes and it really just comes off as hammy and false. Well, it's for, you know, the lowest common denominator, isn't it? It's for mass yeah. consumption. Yeah, but let's talk about some of your work. Uh, one of the most recent films is Nanoman Utility Fog, uh, this short film that and, and Nanoman's this this person who believes he possesses a mysterious meta material not created here on Earth. Tell us about this individual and how you came across him. Yeah, this is actually a really bizarre story. After I'd been you know, filming for a while, people started finding me um, for what they'd call, I guess, cosmic whistleblowing. People that had any kind of information to put forward about non-terrestrial programs within the military, sometimes outside of them. Uh, the gentleman we know as Nanoman, I haven't released his full and real name yet. He is a nanophysicist who has incredible credentials, but essentially... I was directed to him from some friends of mine in the Navy, um, some military guys interested in propulsion that said, you should really look at what this guy, whom I'm calling Nanoman, was doing. And so I went over there to essentially film him on the East Coast on a propulsion device he was calling the Space Drive. So this first film that you saw as part of a series of films, a series of shorts I'll be doing on this individual, and it was a surprise, actually, this element of the films. As I'm filming him with his propulsion system for four years now, 
he at one point, you know, maybe a year or so in, says, well, you know, I am interested in the extraterrestrial topic. I have seen things with my own eyes that defy what we can do with material science today. And this is wow. coming from a nanotechnician. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool. Cool story, dude. And he's like, well, <laughs> do you want to see it? And I was like, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah, I want to see it. And of course, he pulls out this little vial that just looked like water. And I was like, you know, what are you showing me, man? You know, and, and I was really taken aback. You know, my my mentor George Knapp, you know, he always says that you know it's our job to investigate the unexplained, not to explain the uninvestigated. So you know, of course, I wanted to investigate this, and you know, but I didn't know how I was going to do that. You take a vial of water, where do you take it? And he said, you know, look, dummy, it's not water; it's ethanol, and inside the ethanol are trillions and trillions of nanobots of uh, essentially tiny little. Uh, microscopic machines that all work towards a common goal when directed by some sort of supercomputer intelligence. And I'm just staring at him and my eyeballs are falling out of my head. I'm like, are you kidding? (laughs) And then he shows me some images. And these are images from 10 years prior that he did on what he calls the utility fog, which is a term from science fiction of these nanobots. And, you know, they were interesting. I mean, these pictures showed what looked like graspers and claws and clamps and like, you know, machinery. And, you know, I, I didn't know if the guy was just pulling me or what, but I, I said, okay, well, let's say I'm interested. How is someone like me, not a scientist, just a filmmaker, going to be able to look at these on the, you know, microscopic level? And he says, well, how about I get you into NASA? And I started laughing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, NASA's going to let me in with a camera, bearded and tattoos to film not, alleged non-terrestrial stuff. And he says, well, look, get back to LA and I'll, I'll have someone call you. And sure enough, I get a call from a guy from NASA Ames. And he had set up through a university to give me an entire day of scope time on the a scanning electron microscope, which is expensive. And I'm a one-man show. So I fly up to San Francisco and Essentially, we interrogate this liquid through the SEM, and all day long, we didn't see shit. I mean, it was just, you know, it was like these clusters of things. And then as you see in the film, towards the end of the day, we call Nanoman. We say, hey, man, we're not seeing what you imaged. My one goal was to simply take a picture of what he alleged to photograph 10 years ago. And that's the only step I could do to begin is just, is there something here? And the SEM guy, he just he says, we can't find it. And then Nanoman says, you need to change your beam parameters and penetrate through the outer shell or skin of these objects. And then you will see inside these meticulous little holes and voids and things that we couldn't create on the nanoscale. Sure enough, the guy turns the knobs, does a little tweaking, and then all of a sudden, it reveals itself. It's like the guy takes his hand to his head and goes, I can't explain this. So I, I, I was able that day to state matter-of-factly that uh, I completely baffled the NASA nanotech guy with, with, with what was in this liquid. Now, now, are they machines that were non-terrestrial that essentially operate as utility fog from some greater intelligence? I have no idea. But I do know that what is in this vial of apparent liquid um, it, it is said that we do not have the capability to manufacture this on any scale. At this time, we're just 
getting the ability to see it. We can make particles, we can make layers, we can mix materials, but we can't make 3D nanotopography. We can, we can just now print things in 3D out of plastic, but we can't print things at the nanoscale out of different materials. That's really the future. And if we could learn how to make a nan, like a nanoscale 3D printer that could use different materials to build with, that would be how you would make something like this. But we can't do that right now. We will be able to do that one day. Well, there were some comments from the NASA engineer in the film there, and, and that's you know the poignant part is where he is just quite baffled at what he's seeing. But he's describing how we can't print things of, of different materials at the nanoscale yet. Uh, did that suggest that what you were seeing from the electron microscope was a nanoprint of different materials? Is that what it looked like? Well, that's what he that that's how he was trying to explain what it is that he saw. Something that has structure on such a small scale that it's uniform. The only way he could imagine this being created, unless there's a natural process we don't know about. Um, you know, there's a lot of question marks here. But essentially, the way he explained it is you would be able to atomically print something. I mean, at, at this point in science, we can uh, you know, layer atomic, uh, like perfect, actually, atomic layers of like graphene. And this is one of the new metamaterials that came out seven or eight years ago. It has extraordinary pr- properties, um, just extraordinary. It's a superconductor. But that's really it. To actually put things together on the molecular level, atom by atom, especially in alloy, we don't have that ability right now. We will one day, but we don't now. So how does this substance that we look at, how is it formed? And that was a way that he was trying to explain how he'd interpret what he was seeing. But again, we don't know. We know that this substance was collected at a high activity site. And we also know that landing sites of these craft uh, have been highly analyzed. And there are uh, you know, metamaterials. There are, there are alloys. There's dust. There's very strange metals that are left over at real uh, landing sites. So, you know, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but it was an adventure to go to NASA and be able to take the first step in identifying these alloys and what it is. So did you find out where it was alleged that this material had been collected from? Oh, I know where it was com- where it came from, but I, I'm not announcing that. I need to basically keep the, the palette clean for when I have this stuff analyzed. I don't want it out yet, but essentially it's just simply a place where there's high activity of these landings and you know UFO encounters. You know, but I, I don't I wasn't there. I didn't collect the sample. The chain of custody has been broke, but that doesn't matter. What are we looking at? And I want scientists to look at this with a complete tabula rasa. Don't give me anything based on your opinion. Just tell me what you see. This is so advanced, we wouldn't know where the, the first place to start in making this material, making functional machines on the nanoscale, robots. This material is so much more advanced than anything we can imagine with our technology that it doesn't even really show up in science fiction. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more from this uh, nanophysicist, nanoman, because that, yeah. was, that was really incredible that you're working on something else with him and then he just you know, threw that material at you. Yeah, and I'm releasing a lot in 2016 about him. Actually, next month, I'm going to release the short on the space drive, which shows how he has 
developed a propulsion device, which he doesn't even really know how it works. He just knows that it does. Well, speaking of uh, nano objects, you had this uh, wonderful film, Patient 17, focusing on the work of Dr. Roger Lear. And of course, uh, the late Dr. Roger Lear is best known for his uh, work on alien implants. Uh, tell us about how that film came across, because in that the opening few minutes, you have this uh, amazing interview with someone who uh, worked with Lear to get an implant taken out of him. Uh, how did you go about that project and who did you interview? Well, I was absolutely the wrong person to make this film. I did not want to do it. I mean, he, Dr. Roger Lear, before he passed, he came to me and he says, look, I've seen some of your films. I'd really love you to focus your camera on some of this stuff. And I said, look, man, it's not I'm a, a disbeliever. It's outside of my scope of what I think I can cover. I usually work with like military guys or scientists. I, I don't know anything about this. And, he, I, I, and I said, look, if you're lying, I make documentary films. I'm going to out you. Are you sure you yeah. want me to make a film on <laughs> yeah. you? And he was like, yes, Jeremy, I'm sure. I've devoted decades of my life. There's something to this. And I was like, he, he was persistent. So um, I said, okay. And to my surprise, I actually got really into this because when I went to the hospital where they were going to remove the object, the alleged alien implant, the, the alleged off-world nanotechnology, you know, I was like, well, let me see what's up with this. And the guy who had abductive experiences, who came in for the surgery, he was the greatest skeptic of them all. He knew really? he had abductive experiences. He was kind of relying on the expertise of the doctor and whatnot that what was in his leg was somehow correlated. And I think what pushed him over the edge was, you know, they were using things like stud finders to find this thing in his leg. I was like, are you <laughs> oh kidding my God. me? Are you kidding me? But, but apparently it's an okay way to look for alloys in the body. But they made sure this object was denser than bone. And the weirdest part was that it was emitting frequency. And this really gave me, like, put the hairs up on the back of my neck. You know, he ran it over his leg and it was emitting as much electromagnetic frequency, if not more, than my camera. My camera has a battery in it. So something was going on with this thing. And I saw his eyes get wide as saucers, the patient. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to film this. I'm going to film the, you know, taking this out. So you get in there with a scalpel, you rip out this piece of flesh. I mean, it's pretty gnarly. And sure enough, right after Object 17 was removed, my good friend, Dr. Roger Lear, passed away. And so it put me in this really uncomfortable position where before the piece got kind of embargoed and tied up and people's arguing of who owns it and who can analyze it, I was able to get it to a particular lab, a good lab, to get broad spectrum elemental analysis and isotopic analysis on two elements. So that was a huge win because we found out from those reports that there were no less than 36 alloys, some of which were you know, rare earth alloys and heavy metals, highly toxic, uh, inside this piece. And they were all playing nicely together and sitting there in this little tiny piece. Additionally, the, the big thing we found was that the isotopic analysis that in the zinc 64 because in, in any rock on Earth, you're going to find four, kind of five different types of zinc in certain ratios. If you get a ratio that's outside of that terrestrial norm by 1%, then you have found yourself some non-terrestrial zinc. 
And it's really crazy. I found this one guy who's like a total nerd about non-terrestrial or alien zinc. And this guy's like a doctor (laughs) in the Midwest. But he wrote me back begrudgingly and told me what to look for. And sure enough, we have results in these isotopic analysis that are way beyond terrestrial, outside of the norm. Wow. Yeah, but it's one test, man. So the first thing that the the scientists say to me is, well, you got to replicate this test two or three times. What if the lab you know, didn't cleanse the sample enough. And nickel 64 is getting, you know, getting, you know, so I'm like, okay, called the lab. They stand behind the results. And I'm like, do you realize you're saying this is non-terrestrial? And they're like, we're not saying anything. We're just telling you that we do our process perfectly. And this is a true result. This zinc is from some other part of the galaxy at a minimum. These isotopes provided us the evidence, uh, these are not naturally occurring on Earth. Could this material have come from a meteorite and it's just gotten caught up? Been down that road, went to the head meteorite specialist at UCLA, and I asked him, you know, is this meteorite material? And he said, absolutely not. It's not meteorite material, um, which was one of the claims from Dr. Lear's you know, group was that this is meteoric iron, and it certainly is not. I mean, they did not hit that mark right. Um, so that was something we all wondered, is it something that came from outer space to earth, but the rarity of this alloy and its composition and the fact it was emitting frequency, I can't put that out of my mind. I saw it with my own eyes. There there certainly seems to be this continuing drive in all your work to get these things verified, to get... Uh, experts looking at this and to try and put together some kind of verifiable proof of the reality of the phenomenon you're investigating. But at the same time, I've seen a lot of researchers who try and do that stop short at the topic of alien abductions. And it seems as though you have a, a bit of an open mind where you can include that into your work. That can be included into the big picture. And I found this post on your site today, which I found really intriguing where you were writing specifically about the phenomenon. And you said there seems to be a layer, a transmutable fabric of reality that from time to time becomes perforated, revealing an extraordinary reality that is so far beyond the imagination of mortals that it appears to be an act of magic. And you added that the UFO experience a symptom of a much larger cosmic program, requires us to redefine the way in which we approach our study. So I find with the abduction topic, that certainly forces you to kind of redefine the way you think about things. But based on the people you've interviewed, how has your thinking changed over the years? When you talk about redefining your approach, how have you done that? How has your thinking changed? Okay, well, I mean, this is big, big question things, and it really, it leads you to some disturbing answers. Um, I was, from the very beginning, a nuts and bolts guy. What excited me about the UFO phenomenon is that, you know, there are classified reports that have become unclassified that show pilots, people, high-ranking military individuals with incredible radar systems basically saying, yes, there are craft that fly through our skies at all times with impunity, and we cannot catch up with them, we cannot deter them. There's famous accounts of that, 1952 flyover of DC, for example. There have been pilots that I've spoken with personally that were tasked with locking on to spaceships, to these vehicles, and ordered to fire, and their weapons lock up. So the weight of evidence becomes too powerful. I no longer have the luxury of disbelief. But how I look at it differently now 
and this is where it gets kind of strange, I mean, and kind of eerie, is that, you know, from that nuts and bolts perspective, you know, it, it's a stovepipe goes straight up and down the technology, but the technology is a symptom of something much greater. Why? Why are there vehicles most likely carrying beings, at least some of them, visiting Earth? Do they like our ice cream? Is this some sort <laughs> of uh, zoo? Um, you know, what is their interest in humanity since the beginning of recorded human history we know, but possibly and most likely way before that? So the way that I look at it now is that uh, this whole phenomenon of UFOs in the sky, again, it's just a symptom. The technology is a symptom of some sort of interest, some sort of reality that we are not able to see. It's like a koi in a fish pond looking up out of the water. Yeah. We kind of have this dimensionality, which we live in. And I have started to notice, if you look into things like the Skinwalker Ranch experience and all these things that George Knapp has written about, this phenomenon expresses itself through technology. It utilizes it, but it is not the core of the phenomenon. In fact, it's most likely that a lot of the other things that humanity has been experiencing is connected to the thing that we call UFOs. And I don't know if that's a little vague. I'm just saying that essentially there are other elements other than the technology that expresses itself in this phenomenon. And they do connect. And, and it is kind of worrisome to think about what the interest is of these visitors. Um, that's the best way I can explain it now. That was certainly a turning point that I had in studying this phenomenon is that previously before I'd looked into things that are surrounding mysterious universe, I think, oh, well, that's a UFO sighting. Oh, that's a poltergeist sighting. And they are compartmentalized. They are completely separate. But when you start looking at the literature and start looking into the reports, it seems like there's this mix. It's like someone will see a UFO and then suddenly start experiencing ghosts in their home. It seems like there is a connection between all of these different facets of the phenomenon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The deeper you go, the more you will realize that uh, when there is a UFO sighting, there is oftentimes uh, than not much, much, uh, much deeper an underbelly of experiences that happens surrounding those UFO encounters. And, and they, they do seem to be paranormal, poltergeist-like there are often beings, there, there's dream issues. I mean, it, it takes you to the Mothman prophecies. There were tons of UFO sightings in the area when the Mothman prophecies were going on. But the really weird stuff, the press didn't pick up, the military didn't focus on. I've actually talked to military individuals who are tasked with research in some of these cases, and they literally left it out. It was just too bizarre and too strange. And guess what? It was not something that could be commercialized or changed into weaponry. And so they were uninterested. If it wasn't the stovepipe of technology, then they were uninterested. They would turn a blind eye. So for example, the Betty and Barney Hill case, this is an abduction case, one of the first and most famous uh, in America or in the world at, at any time. It was September 19th, 1961, uh, into the evening of September 20th. And what's really interesting about this, this is a couple that's driving through Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I mean, they're really interesting couple, all of a sudden they get this abductive experience. Uh, you know, everybody denied, they said, you're crazy. This couldn't have happened except, you know, after that time, the military confirmed that there was an object, the UFO on radar that did in fact land at that exact time. And they also have it on radar where it took 
off after their claim of being abducted. So you have to ask yourself, is there something to this? Is there something to these people who knew nothing of this phenomenon and then claim an abduction? I have to give it a little weight that it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, going back to what you were saying about the military not being interested in the phenomena if it doesn't relate to some type of technology, do you think that their opinion has now changed? Do you think they've expanded their scope that they might be able to exploit new forms of phenomena? Well, you know, from time to time, that has happened from, from my knowledge and the, and the resources I have, you know, who have been directly involved in these types of projects. There's an ebb and a flow. There are certain people and at certain times in American history where our government says, well, you know, we very simply want to look at the technology, reverse engineering. There's downed craft. Great. There are people who have tackled the bigger questions, but more often than not, from what I understand, um, it's, it's, it's almost frightening to them. And there's two veils of secrecy in all of this. I mean, one being the visitors themselves, and then the other being, you know, our intelligence agencies, which are really global. It's not just America. So I would say it depends on the year, it depends on the time. There are certain individuals and sub-factions within the defense industry who are interested to assess if these things are a threat, not just the craft, but the whole phenomenon. But I think it's just too difficult to study. It's like trying to look at microbes with a looking glass. I mean, it's sometimes just imperceivable. Speaking of some of those individuals uh, that you've spoken to, in fact, one of the very first videos we saw that was from your work was where Richard Dolan uh, had an interview with an ex-CIA operative. So there are these, these whistleblowers coming forward, of course, but... How do you find these sources? How did you come across this guy and how do you get them to tell their story? Well, uh, I guess that's a little different for each person. I, I definitely now have more people coming to me and know that I can keep my word and I can keep silent about certain things. So through, you know, kind of referrals, you know, people find me. But um, that particular case was kind of put into my lap. I didn't know if I believed that I wanted to hear what this dying man had to say. I mean, just, you know, right before you die, you jam into a room with a bunch of filmmakers you don't know, even though your wife doesn't want you to do it because she's religious and thinks what you saw were demons, right? Right. Yeah. Yet he he does it anyway. And um, I do have to say from what we could verify, he's been telling a story for 25 years. He just stopped actually 25 years ago because he was threatened. So he actually started to go public uh, through Linda Moulton Howe. And then, you know, you, this is decades later, started coming forward again because he thought and figured he was close to the end of his life. Um, he told a fantastic story. I, I, there's only certain elements that I can confirm, like his military record, but not his intelligence record. So you have to kind of leave it to your opinion whether you put weight in this one man's testimony. But people... Like Bob Lazar, I've been able to interview Bob and he's become a friend. And, you know, here's a guy that I find to be extraordinarily credible. There's elements to his story which are, you know, impossible to prove and, in fact, might have been fabricated. I have no idea. But the things I was able to prove about Bob Lazar, he was where he said he was. He worked where he said he worked. He was, in fact, a physicist at Los Alamos. There is no doubt to that. I found a whistleblower, I guess, you know, who worked there with him. And it was always you know, my and my mentor's contention that essentially if Bob worked at Los Alamos as a physicist, it's not a huge leap to say he was picked up to work out near Area 51. Here's a guy, hasn't changed his story. And in fact, I can tell you he's telling the truth. What's going on up there could be the most important event in history. You're talking about... 
contact, physical, physical contact, and proof of, from another another system, another planet, another intelligence. That's got to be the biggest event in history. Period. And it's real. And it's real, and it's there. That's it's incredible to look at where Lazar is now because he's still doing his thing. I mean, he's still doing his uh, kind of fringe physics and working out on his own. He's got his own company going. And he hasn't changed his story after all these years, despite the effects it might have on his on his company. Uh, so, have you been? Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Bob's a friend. Um, he's a fascinating scientist. He's actually helped me more with scientific interpretation under the radar of some of my projects than any scientist. The guy is extremely bright, extremely intelligent, but he's also one of the biggest skeptics and deniers because look, he's seen it. He's seen the real stuff. He's had his hands on it. He said it's like throwing an iPhone to a bunch of monkeys and saying, make one. He said, we don't even have <laughs> the material science to do this. He, says, he said it was an absolute fool's errand when the, the, the government essentially asked him to, to reverse engineer the, you know, this propulsion system. It's unbelievable. There's no way. He said it was most likely grown as an alloy, which by the way, just about a year ago, we, we were able to commercialize the growing of metals, which is pretty interesting. He said that's probably most likely how these craft were made. But it, it's fascinating. He's a total skeptic with, with most things because there's a huge signal-to-noise problem with the UFO world. You have to have your BS meter turn to 11. Oh, absolutely. We're very familiar with that. I wanted to bring up those individuals, and I'm glad you mentioned that that gap in knowledge there because one of the questions I had for you was... Can we get answers from interviewing the insiders, interviewing intelligence officers, interviewing people that may have been attached to this project? The the greater question, I guess, is do human beings actually have the answers? No. We have answers to a certain degree, and that's it. Only to the degree in which we were able to kind of forge out of the last 60 years or so. Of course, we can get closer to the truth, but you know, we have to separate the wheat from the chaff and find the people who actually worked on these programs. And I'll tell you from personal experience, most people that have don't want to, and I quote, crack the egg. And that's you know a problem that we see is that there is, there is real threat to people speaking out who are in these programs, real threat for everything from just completely losing their careers, which I've sadly, um, you know, I guess witnessed, and then all the way down to personal well-being threats. It's really easy to silence someone if you don't want this technology information out, which is, which is the fact. We, we want to be a superior nation, have superior technology so that we have military prowess. I mean, that's essentially the reason for the cover-up to a certain degree. Let's go back to one of those uh, bigger questions and, and talk about these endgame scenarios. You do write on your site on this post on the phenomenon at extraordinarybeliefs.com that the true architects of the secrecy remain the visitors themselves. And from our research here, we've seen researchers describe this terrifying scenario of control and deception it ultimately leads to the usurping of human beings on this planet. While other people involved in the phenomenon uh, talk about things, concepts such as raising the consciousness of humans or helping us reach our potential as species, that this phenomenon might, might be beneficial in a way. What side of the fence do you fall on with your work and the people you've interviewed? How do you view the overall uh, effect of this phenomenon on humankind? Well, I mean, I guess, first of all, I have you know, 
no fear about it because essentially I think if you live in fear, it's the soul killer. It's just, okay, we're well, going to walk around being afraid. You can walk around not being afraid. It is what it is, whatever is going on. If you can't change it, accept it, move forward and try to do better. But I used to be of the mind that maybe it is benevolent. Maybe they are helping us from blowing ourselves up because they've stopped nuclear weapons a number of times in multiple countries. But I'm more now understanding that in fact it's not benevolent. This is a beautiful story told to children. If you can tell me one positive thing that has ever occurred from these visitors, we're not getting the cure to cancer. We're not being shown the light. You know, these visitors are doing what they want with us. They are taking what they want. They are confusing the public at all times. The conflicts between the stories of similar visitations are just too much to pack into one bottle. There's no cohesive narrative told by these visitors. So no, it is not benevolent. No, it is not good for us. Um, does that mean what's going on is nefarious? I just don't know. It could be a zoo experiment or it could be a lot, lot worse. Do you think there's a possibility that it simply just could be competing species, that some are actually benevolent, some are quite horrible, and they're just kind of messing with us as they come across us? Yeah, you know, um, of course, that that could be a possibility. Uh, I tend to think that we're missing the mark completely, that it's not as simple as just beings coming from other star systems in this beautiful galactic world of diversity, that in fact there is some sort of deeper uh, experience going on, that there is like a cloak, that there is some sort of fabric, there's an intelligence that seems to be controlling what we see. The phenomenon is always one step ahead of us. If you look at culturally, how people describe what they see, all the way from the Lady of Fatima to modern day current UFO sightings, what we're shown could be anything. It's almost like a puppet master deciding to show us certain technologies at certain times. Um, I'm not afraid of it, but, but, I, but I do believe that it has its own agenda. The, the phenomenon itself has its own agenda, and it's just expressing to us what we want to see half the time. Well, Jeremy, we're so glad we came across your work and it's just refreshing to speak to someone who's approaching this phenomenon with such a thoughtful and intelligent approach. We're really excited about what you've got coming up as well. We've got our eye on extraordinarybeliefs.com, but tell us what you've got in store for 2016. A lot of big things for 2016. Um, just at the end of 2015, I was able to question the chief historian of the CIA and the chief executive officer of Area 51 through the CIA. And they were fascinating individuals. I mean, real interesting fellas. And I think in 2016, I'm going to be releasing a lot about Nanoman. I'm going to be releasing a series called Immaculate Deception about the godfather of conspiracy, John Lear. Um, you know, all, if you can look at everything, extraordinarybeliefs.com, but I'll be doing one of the headline talks at the International UFO Congress in February in Arizona, and then contacting the desert right by me. I live in Pioneertown, California, um, out here in the desert in June. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to engage the topics. But if you just go to my site, you support me by watching a film. And I hope that you enjoy the journey as much as I do. And then we get somewhere in 2016. Yeah. Fantastic work, Jeremy. Can't wait to see more. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks guys. I love your show. I can't wait to hear more. I'll be listening in. 